Welcome to FRT, the IIF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Renier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IIF. In the face of recent geopolitical events, specifically Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what we're hearing about how we might expect cryptocurrency to be used during these events, I'm here with Caroline Malcolm, Head of International Public Policy and Research for blockchain analytics firm Chainalysis. Welcome, Caroline. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jessica. Caroline came to Chainalysis from an impressive tenure as head of the OECD's Global Blockchain Policy Center in Paris. Caroline, could you please share a, a bit about the center first and, and your efforts there so our listeners can get to know about your background? Absolutely. So the Global Blockchain Policy Center at the OECD was set up just as OECD members were starting to think about how some key emerging technologies like blockchain, but also artificial intelligence, might be having very broad reaching effects across all policy areas. So the blockchain policy was set up to work across all of the areas that, that OECD works on. Now, given that a lot of the developments with blockchain technology are focused on financial services, the financial services sector, not surprisingly, a lot of our policy work when it came to blockchain was focused on applications in finance. So we're talking about things like DeFi, decentralized finance. We're talking about central bank digital currencies, stable coins, asset tokenization. But the center's remit actually went a lot broader than that and looked at, for example, use of blockchain for supply chain, blockchains as part of a country's innovation strategy. So how it might fit into a broader digitalization of the economy, for example. And also things like tax consequences um, in terms of you know, cryptocurrency adoption and, and how people should really be declaring their taxes in, in respect of, of, of crypto. So it was really a very broad reaching uh, look at how emerging tech like blockchain is reshaping the policy landscape to try and give countries a sense of what best practice or different options might be in this space in terms of uh, the policy frameworks. That's fascinating, Caroline. Um, you know, now you're at Chainalysis. Um, can you talk to me a bit about uh, how, how that work has translated to your current position? Absolutely. So here at Chainalysis, we're essentially almost a data platform looking across the whole ecosystem of, of digital assets to help people translate what you see in terms of those public blockchains and, and making that connection between that data and what we have in sort of the real world entities. Because the very interesting thing about blockchain, of course, is that this information is public. We're using public blockchains, which cryptocurrencies and other digital assets are. But without some sort of uh, guidance about how to actually read this data, it's very difficult to make sense of, of what it all means. And that's where we come in, providing this sort of data and analytics overlay. Essentially, it's a little bit like blockchain is the map, and we provide the street signs and the naming about how to navigate around that map. And so my role in terms of development and, and, and leading the, the policy team internationally is really about making sure that we work with clients, both public and private sector, to help them understand, you know, what's coming down the track, what we're seeing in terms of that data, what implications that might have for regulatory frameworks, for, for policy options that, that policymakers and lawmakers are considering. And, and helping them sort of navigate this space, whether they might be a, a traditional finance company thinking about moving into this space and worried about regulatory risk and how to manage that using data, or they might be uh, regulators wanting to get an oversight on the market to really understand what's going on and what trends we're seeing and, and things, you know, in terms of compliance, for example, with 
money laundering rules or tax rules. So with that, that's actually a great lead right into what I want to talk about today with uh, recent events. Um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has prompted rapid and unprecedented actions from the international community, as, as you know, um, including crippling sanctions against uh, Russian entities and individuals and the removal of banks from SWIFT to limit Russia's access to other financial markets. Um, some people have suggested that cryptocurrency could be used to evade these sanctions in part because digital asset transactions don't require use of SWIFT's messaging system. At the same time, the White House's National Security Council has stated that the scale at which Russia would need to circumvent the financial sanctions in place would almost certainly render cryptocurrency as an ineffective primary tool for the state. Can you share your reactions for our listeners? Yeah, look, there's uh, certainly in the first days of, of the invasion and the lead up to the invasion of, of Ukraine, we saw a lot of chatter about how if sanctions were put in place and then when they were put in place, could cryptocurrency be used as a, as a way to evade those, those obligations? I think what, I guess the first point there is really to make very clear that just like in the traditional financial system where there are, there are systems that you can put in place to ensure that transactions with sanctioned entities and individuals don't take place, we have equivalent mechanisms uh, in, in the crypto economy. So they don't work in, in quite the same way, but they are there and they are able to identify, for example, once... Um, Entities like OFAC, agencies like OFAC, are, do announce you know, sanctioned entities and they identify a particular Bitcoin wallets, for example. What we do is almost immediately, and I really mean sort of within an hour, we will make that information available on that map that I talked about in terms of the ecosystem. So that if you're a cryptocurrency exchange using uh, Chainalysis, if you're receiving a transaction in for somebody wanting to you know, uh, transfer their Bitcoin into some sort of fiat currency, US dollars, for example, you're gonna, and, and that money is in fact coming from one of those sanctioned wallets, you're going to receive an alert straight away. So you're going to know straight away that that transaction is coming from the sanctioned entities and therefore that you, what you really need to be doing is, is, freezing, is freezing those assets and seizing them. So from, from that, in, in that regard, although the sanctions implementation don't work in, in precisely the same way there is a system to to deal with it so in the sense that this this talk that we've heard about um you know cryptocurrency can be used to evade i really think that's probably very overstated um in terms of levels of of risk because we do have these these systems in place the second point you mentioned was really more about sort of volume so if you know the the comment there from Carol House about um, you know whether you sort of essentially could Russia's economy sort of move to cryptocurrency given given the uh, sanctions on sort of ruble denominated um, traditional financial uh, services, and there you've got and, and I think as she correctly identified, you've really got a couple of problems of doing that at the sort of scale that you would need to do to support an economy like that. Now in the past, obviously, we've seen sanctions against other countries or other entities, and thinking here about sort of Iran and, and, and North Korea, but here we're talking about something far more significant in terms of the size of the economy that we're dealing with. And so then when you compare that with sort of the crypto economy, if we just look sort of at where we're to the liquidity that is in the, the market, the value of the market, we're looking at somewhere between, you know, sort of one to, to three trillion 
in, in US dollars in, in terms of the crypto economy. And that obviously compared to the sort of volumes that Russia would need, there simply isn't enough liquidity to sort of soak up you know, the transfers that would be needed to put all of those transactions into, in, into Bitcoin. So that would be a very slow process. There's not enough demand, for example. Um, but then there are also some more nuanced points. So for example, if in that process you were looking to um, use mixes, so a type of uh, protocol which can hide the origin of, of funds, of, of cryptocurrency funds, again, those mixes themselves has liquidity limitations. And, and that's another reason why cryptocurrency is probably not your, your kind of tool of choice if you're, if you're thinking about how to evade sanctions, either at, the, at sort of the individual level or at the sort of large scale that, that Carol House was speaking about. Cryptocurrency does also have a, a number of characteristics, right, that make it much more traceable than perhaps even cash and traditional, well, particularly cash and, and traditional forms of finance. Could you talk to our listeners a little bit about some of those characteristics and, and what you look for when you are um, tracing them on the blockchain? Absolutely. So the sort of transparent aspects of, of, of blockchain, also its permanent and immutable nature are three really, really important things when you think about, you know, how could this be used for sanctions evasion and, and how realistic uh, is that? What's really interesting with those three characteristics is that as we, so we have the information that we have today, for example, about, um, you know, which entities might be sanctioned, um, which wallet addresses might be identified and so on and so forth. But what's more, we also have all of the information that we will continue to gather over time and we will all continue to have access to this record of transactions. So as we gather more details about that map, which is what chain analysis is, is all about, we work very closely with our, with our customers to do that. So as we gather that, that information about, you know, either sanctions that are put in place at a later point in time, uh, including identifiers about crypto wallets, as we begin to put all of those pieces together, we can gather over time a much more complete picture of what is going on. And that means we're able to go back and have a look at some of those earlier transactions and think about them in light of that new information that we have. And that's made a lot easier by the fact that we are able to have that total ecosystem view. So it's not a matter of sort of going, you know, to, to financial institution by financial institution to sort of follow, you know, follow the money in a sense. We immediately have that, that overall view of, of all the transactions and, 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 and how they're taking place. And I think we've already seen some examples um, outside of sanctions, but for example, in the recent um, DOJ uh, arrest relating to the Bitfinex hack. Now that process took, uh, you know, from the time of the hack to, to those charges being laid, we're talking about a process of almost seven years. But that's that process where information has been gathered over time and allows um, us to put together a holistic picture lay it over that, that sort of history of, of transactions that we know nobody has tampered with. We know it's immutable, it's permanently available and it's transparent and it allows us to go back and really understand what has happened um, with that later information. There's just so much, so much data and information that we can, we can take from the blockchain um, and, and these new technologies. Um, with that, I wanted to move into the flip side of the earlier question that I asked you. 
many people have also suggested that cryptocurrency could facilitate the flow of what are very necessary funds to both Ukrainian and Russian citizens, refugees, um, others who are currently suffering due to both the violence and uh, collapse of their economies um, in, in the face of these sanctions. I, I noted that Chainalysis actually sent out an email recently with the specific subject line that said, crypto as a lifeline, not a weapon in wartime. I'd love if you could comment on, on those aspects. <laughs> Absolutely. So what's really interesting about both these countries is that they're very high levels of crypto literacy. So Ukraine, we rank fourth in the world in terms of grassroots crypto adoption, and, and Russia is, is 18th in the world. So this really means that it's not perhaps particularly surprising that what we've seen on, on both sides, um, and particularly in the Ukraine, just to focus there, where we've seen the Ukrainian government call for donations in, in cryptocurrency. And so it's unsurprising due to the levels of, of sort of crypto literacy you have, but also kind of due to the efficient and, and low cost means of, of transferring crypto that, that these systems actually allow. And we're talking about very significant levels of, of, of donations, even just in, in, in this first week of, uh, since, since the invasion uh, began. And that is obviously something very, very new, something very novel in terms of these sorts of scenarios, you know, almost a crowdfunding uh, that is going on through the use of, of, of crypto. Um, but as I said, probably unsurprising that it happened in this country, given what we know about how interested Ukrainians were in, in crypto prior prior to these events. You know, the, there are two very different sides of this coin, it seems right now. What advice would you have for virtual asset service providers, um, be they the exchanges, whether they be other people participating um, in mining? Uh, you know, what would your thoughts be for, for them and for financial institutions more broadly as they, they navigate how to comply with these sanctions uh, going forward? I think what's very interesting about sort of the timing of, of this discussion is it's taking place just a couple of years after the sort of international standard for, for money laundering was made very clearly uh, applicable to or virtual currencies as the Financial Action Task Force call them or, or digital assets, cryptocurrencies, sort of, it, it, it can be a broad tent um, of, of the language there. And, and, and what those you know, requirements really put in place and established as an international standard is requirements relating to sort of customer due diligence, requirements relating to what is known in terms of the travel rule. So making sure that if you're a virtual asset service provider, that you know not just the you know, identity information relating to your customer, but the, the counterparty to the transaction that, that you're carrying out. And so those kind of sort of baseline um, of, of, of requirements has now been very clearly set for the industry. Governments themselves are in the process of actually implementing those standards into national level laws and different countries are at different stages in, in that process. So that, but that kind of, um, you know, an understanding that that requirement either is already in place or is about to be in place is something that's been very live in the industry's mind uh, for the last couple of years. I guess the second aspect is, is the more sort of um, implementation process. And there has been some very useful uh, guidance brought out on that by uh, OFAC, sanctions compliance guidance for the virtual currency industry to help them understand. And very timely, it came out in October last year, but to really help them understand OFAC sanctions requirements and procedures in terms of licensing and enforcement processes, um, what sort of sanctions compliance best practice 
looks like and tailoring that for the virtual currency industry. So I think there is some clear guidance that virtual asset service providers can call on at this moment to really think about, well, what does this mean for me? What do I need to be doing in this space? Because obviously sanctions is, is, is not something that, that you know, many might come across in their sort of day-to-day business, but it's obviously absolutely critical to, to safeguarding uh, the industry and, and, and safeguarding all of the users uh, in the industry to make sure that it can, can continue to thrive, but in a way that you know, has these sort of guardrails around it. I wanted to move to the ruble for a moment, and specifically the digital ruble. I'm wondering whether you've thought about central bank digital currencies in this context, how you're thinking about that. Are you thinking about that? How should financial institutions be thinking about that? You know, so look, this is this is a very interesting space. And I think in the in the debate about, you know, design and development of central bank digital currencies, this question of how to ensure that in many ways central bank digital currency sort of has many of the same um, utility as, as cash, particularly in economies where you've seen this sort of decline of, of decline of cash. But equally recognizing that it is different, it has a portability, for example, um, and it has a, a sort of a movability that 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 um, you know cash doesn't doesn't have. And so how do you address this question of making sure the central bank digital currency can't be used? for money laundering, for example, or or for sanctions uh, evasion. I think that's been very much uh, top of mind. And there's been sort of varying different proposals in how how to deal with that question. Some countries are exploring a sort of a threshold approach whereby transactions either within a month or a certain time period under a certain threshold maybe either have, you know, if you're under $300 in a month, for example, you might have have very limited KYC requirements. Once you start to move up those kind of volume levels, then you are going to have sort of tighter KYC controls actually kick in. And others have have thought, well, no, from from sort of the first dollar, the same level of of, of KYC and anti-money laundering rules uh, really should apply. And so there is, I guess there's not really one answer, but just to say that this is very much in, in the minds of policymakers and really has to be considered uh, as part of the design phase of a, of a central bank digital currency. All right. So what about personal wallets? There's a lot of discussion and, and that certain rules don't necessarily apply in the, in the same way. I'll let you, you know, lay those out for us. Yeah, so this is obviously very interesting. So when it comes to to sanctions themselves, I mean, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, the sanctions will will apply to you. I guess what is is different, and 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 this is where you know one the sort of the practical level. So that's that's true in a legal sense. How do you monitor that or make sure that people aren't transacting? Uh, particularly, people you know, single individuals won't have access, or most of them won't have access to a data analytic tool like like ours to know necessarily the sort of origin of, of funds. So there's sort of that practical uh, level question. But the other aspect, of course, is that when it comes to anti-money laundering, so going a little bit broader than the, the sanctions focus, that what the standard really requires there is, is to focus on the service providers. So these sort of centralized points in the system, they might be exchanges, they might be custodians, they might be brokers. And the obligation is really on them to know who they're dealing with. And they, I mean, that's true. They might be dealing, a, a, an exchange dealing with a personal wallet and I'll need to know about the identity of the person behind that personal wallet. But then when that next step happens, so if that personal wallet then transfers into another personal wallet, neither of those people are under any obligation. 
So from one perspective, and that's, that's, I guess, a really key difference with the traditional financial sector in the sense that you can't do anything in the traditional financial sector without going through an intermediary. So there will always be someone who has that obligation, and that, but that's not true uh, in, in the cryptocurrency world. The question though really is, well, is that, is that truly a risk? And I think what you know, we often focus on in, in money laundering in, in general is what we call sort of on and off ramps. As it stands today, you still can't go around buying very many things in, in Bitcoin in a day-to-day -day sense. You're not going down to your coffee shop. You're not going, you know, there's very few people who will sort of make either major or minor transactions using, using cryptocurrency. Um, so you still need to go somewhere to somebody who can change that, that crypto back into fiat if you want to use it in, in, in the real world or in the physical world, if I can call it that. And, and that's the point at which those obligations will kick in. And then because of this transparent blockchain, that person will be able to look back through and see what the origins of funds. So if Give you a concrete example. If you're in a if you're in a sanction if you're a sanctioned individual, you have a crypto wallet that's been identified through a few hops, a few passages through different personal wallets that you've created, and maybe three or four hops down the line, you then transfer into an exchange, hoping to turn that into crypto. The fantastic thing about blockchain is that if I'm the exchange, I can look back and see the origin of those funds and that they come from illicit activity, they come from a sanctioned wallet. And so at that point, you have an effective system that kicks in and says, you know, we have a problem here and, and, and can actually act to, you know, for example, to, to block the, the cashing out of, of those funds into, into fiat. So it's, a, it's an issue sort of more in theory than, than one in practice. And I would expect that you likely see some cryptocurrencies that can be more readily off-ramped than others, or at least more efficiently or rapidly or at, at scale. Would you say that's a fair statement? What is very clear is that in terms of liquidity, you, you really are only going to be using Bitcoin or Ether to, to, to really to ensure that you're operating in a, in, a, in a crypto that has sufficient liquidity that you can move in and out of it you know, with relatively speed, that there is a market for it. Um, you don't have to go searching for buyers if, you, if you're trying to turn it into, into fiat. And are those, in your opinion, since you look very carefully at tracing these each day, are, are those perhaps more readily traceable than others like Monero that, you know, some people might suggest, you know, if somebody's looking to evade sanctions, they might turn to other other types of cryptocurrency. I guess the the, the issue here again, no sort of no matter which cryptocurrency you're you're using, you're still gonna have ultimately this issue at a certain point that you're gonna have to go into to, to fiat currency. So you know, even if at a certain point you used, you know, uh, you know what they call an altcoin, alternative coin to the sort of the major ones of, of Bitcoin or even Ether, you are at some point going to need to go to an exchange or a broker or, you know, an over-the-counter dealer to move that into, and, and they're going to need to have access to the sort of liquidity that you need in order to do that. So as the price of rubles really falls through the floor right now, what trends have you seen perhaps in exchanges between rubles and Bitcoin or, or other currencies that you might find interesting for our listeners to, to understand? Yeah, so what's interesting is that, as I said, you're talking about two economies that, you know, in Russia and the Ukraine that were already, you know, 
big users of, of, of cryptocurrency. So it's a transaction volumes that, that we're seeing are not significantly different overall. But what is very interesting is that in, in perhaps particular trading pairs, we are seeing spikes in transaction volumes for, for example, in the ruble Bitcoin trading pair. And the ruble volume shot up to reach, I think, oh no, or almost 64 million US dollars um, on, on five exchanges, which are particularly popular in, in Russia, um, which is about eight times what we've seen in, in the week prior. So you are seeing in, in, certain, in certain parts of the ecosystem a lot more activity than you might have seen earlier. And would you go as far as to consider those similar to, you know, indications of and warnings of other kinds of nefarious activity that you tend to to look for when you analyze transactions? Yeah, look, it's a it's a good question. I guess the other thing that we're sort of keeping an eye on is blockchain activity tied to, you know, sort of any tied to either of these jurisdictions, sort of anything anomalous. But in addition to that, we're really looking at activity related to known Russia-based cyber criminal groups, um, including ransomware organizations. We know that, for example, in 2021, Russia-related cyber criminal groups accounted for about 74% of ransomware revenue. So it's obviously a very significant player in that. And, and obviously part of this war is, is certainly a sort of a cyber war. And, and that's been made clear from you know the statements that we're seeing out a number of, of ransomware groups. And, and certainly that is something that, that we're keeping an eye on, whether it be you know, um, activity on darknet marketplaces or in relation to, to ransomware, we're, we're watching very closely to see what the trend is uh, over time as to whether this invasion leads to an uptick in, in those activities. What final thoughts would you leave us with as financial institutions look to comply with these sanctions? First of all, I would say that, you know, if you're looking to evade sanctions, crypto is probably not your, you know, your first tool of choice. And secondly, I think this is obviously a very tragic and, and, and terrible situation. For the industry, I think what it has done, both in terms of, of, of government, regulators, lawmakers, but also uh, in terms of the industry itself, is it really helped people get a grasp of what it means to undertake transactions on a public, transparent, permanent, immutable system and really understand what that means and understand how it is very different from traditional finance and help people understand what their obligations are, whether it be sanctions related or money laundering related. Those are going to be very important areas for, for the industry going forward, but also sort of undoing some of those myths that might have cropped up that we saw, as I said, in, in we talked very early on the podcast in terms of, you know, that initial reaction was, well, we can put sanctions on, but they're just going to go to crypto. And really kind of that reckoning with the reality of that maybe that's that's not quite as simple as, as people thought. Certainly not as simple as, as people thought with a, an economy the size of Russia's relative to the total size of the crypto market at hand. Thank you very much, Caroline, for being with us today and for sharing your views on cryptocurrency's role in the current conflict. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of FRT. We look forward to having you join us again in the upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the website as well at IIF.com.